0: O gracious Lord, our God, you're the one who uh, draws your people to yourself. You're the one who dwells among your people by your Spirit. And you give us the promise that uh, there is coming a day when the dwelling of God will be with man. Uh, When we will enter into uh, not a tabernacle built with hands, um, but uh, having now entered through the tabernacle uh, of Jesus Christ into a place and an inheritance prepared for us, set aside where we will be in your presence, we will behold your glory, uh, where uh, it will not be veiled from us, uh, but we will uh, be purified and perfected and in Christ uh, gaze uh, upon your glory and upon your goodness. Help us to see shadows of these wonderful things, even as we look into the Old Testament as your, uh, your word teaches us so to do, uh, that these things are but shadows uh, of true realities that happen in Christ and that are coming one day for those who are in Christ. And so help us to see these things. Help us to rejoice uh, in who you have given for us and who you have made us in him. Help us to see these things and praise you and honor you. We ask in your name. Amen. All right. So we are uh, in Exodus. We're going to be picking up today in chapter 38, verse 21. So you might remember the last time we were together, we were looking at chapters... Oh, 33 into 35, so we are jumping over quite a bit, uh, and we ended with this, I sort of remember the the trajectory, I know it's been a while, Um, but God has called his people to himself, he met with them at Sinai, he gave them the commandments of the law, and they said, yes, 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 all that the Lord has commanded we will do. Uh, And uh, and then Moses uh, was with the Lord and receiving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And there's this great interruption. The Lord is preparing to dwell with his people. He's going to be with them. He's going to have this tent of meeting that he says, there I will dwell among my people. Uh, And it's uh, directly after we hear all of the preparations and all the directions, really, for what the tabernacle is supposed to be, uh, that we find Israel at the foot of the mountain worshiping the golden calf. And there is this major interruption... And the whole thing is put in jeopardy. The Lord says, yes, I'm going to send you into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, if you're you're not going with us, what's the point, in a sense? The point is to be there, uh, but to be there with you and to have your presence go among us and and have the reassurance of who you are for your people. Uh, And so he asks for God's glory, asks to see God's glory, asks to know his ways. Uh, And through these things, the Lord reassures him that he is the forgiving God who will indeed Dwell among his people, And so now we're picking up, uh, we've skipped over a lot. It's really a repetition uh, of what came before the golden calf. Uh, before was, you know, a bunch of instructions on this is how you should make the tabernacle, all of its furnishings and the, the garments for the priests. And then after the golden calf, we have, and this is how they made all these things. Um, so I would encourage you, as I did before, to go back and read the material that's in between uh, what we ended with and what we're picking up with here. Uh, We're going to look at just a little bit of it, the making of the priestly garments uh, especially. um, But uh, we'll see some of that. So we're going to pick up in chapter 38. Uh, I'm going to read the end of chapter 38, uh, verses 21 through 30. Uh, So I'm going to take all the numbers and the shekels. Uh, I need four readers to finish out the rest of Exodus, please. Jay, wonderful. Look at that enthusiasm. I love it. Oh, wow. New year, new you. I like it. Uh, Jay, would you please take uh, 39 verses 1 through 21? Somebody else, the remainder of chapter 39, please. Mike, thank you. Uh, Chapter 39 verses 22 through 43. Uh, Somebody else, chapter 40 verses 1 through 20. Anybody, anybody. Thank you, David. Uh, Chapter 40, verses 1 through 20, and one more reader, chapter 40, verses 21 through 38. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate it. All right, uh, so I'm going to start out in chapter 38, verses 21 through 30. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. As they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamathar, the son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahasimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold for the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels, "...by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents, and seventeen hundred seventy-five shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca, a head, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone who is listed in the records, from twenty years old and upward, for six hundred three thousand five hundred fifty men." The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, a hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar the bases around the court and the bases of the grate of the court, the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court." Thank you so much for that reading. Um, I want to do a few things today as we try to, to wrap together uh, our study of Exodus. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the tabernacle itself and the, um, the furnishings and uh, the garments. Um, I want to zero in on uh, this last portion, uh, the glory of the Lord, uh, filling the tabernacle. And then I, I want to take just a couple minutes and, uh, and sort of step back and ask you, Uh, What are some of your big takeaways uh, from having spent most of the fall together studying these things and and now coming back to it uh, with a little bit of distance? Sometimes that's good. Uh, It just happened to work out in our schedule this way. Next week, um, Steve Barry is going to come, and uh, he's going to begin a new series uh, for the adult Sunday school class going through the book of Acts. Uh, So who knows how long that's going to take, 28 chapters. Uh, He's probably going to bleed at least uh, past this spring semester, maybe into the fall, or maybe next spring, we'll take it back up, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I, I want to take now, I- at the end, as we're, we're thinking about these things, and just talk about some some major takeaways. What does this all mean um, for us? But you saw, I think even as we're, we're reading through these things, um, and hearing some of your reading, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but even in the new year, uh, it's let's be honest, it's hard to get excited about Rings on the ephod and the the sash and the, I mean there's so much detail uh, in these things and because there's so much detail generally you see people taking one of two approaches right uh, either there's the approach where we get fixated on the detail and some people do that that's the way they read scripture that's the way they uh, they get into to what's in scripture and they sort of pick it apart and, and and almost make it you know there are those people that look for codes in scripture and we can do that uh, to a certain extent and get too fixated on the detail. Uh, The other is just to go right past it. In fact, if if you have uh, most study Bibles and they get to these sections um, in the New Testament, the ESV study Bible, which is a great study Bible, even does the same. Well, they say, well, look back there. Um, You know, they'll point back to the original, but there aren't even all that many uh, notes concerning the the first section on the tabernacle. And and in fact, now when you get to the letter to the Hebrews, uh, he says about these things, we, we can't go into detail now. Um, So, so we either uh, sort of get fixated on it, or we just sort of uh, turn away from it. But, but there's a lot here for us to see. You know, I want to look at some of this. The first question is, we we've got all this opulence in the tabernacle, right? I mean, there is gold, there is silver, there is bronze for the uh, the less opulent things. There is finely twisted linen. There is scarlet and purple and blue cord, and there is you know gold leaf woven into these things. Where does this band of Uh, slaves, former slaves, get all of this stuff? And is it legitimate for us to think that they would really have whatever, you know, 29 talents of gold? Seems like this amazing uh, amount to us. Jay? Okay. Okay. So we did see that, that they looted Egypt, but I mean can we really think that, uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate here for a second, Uh, can we really think that, that they would have given all of this stuff uh, to these these slaves as they sent them out. Why, why do just get rid of them? Uh, we've had enough uh, of what they've done to our country, and so let's let's get rid of them. Why would uh, the Egyptians send them with all of these things? Can you think? The enthusiasm is wonderful, Jay. Oh, why? Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand at, at any moment, yeah. I'm wondering if they wanted
1: them to Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great uh, way to look at it. In fact, we see the same thing uh, in, uh, further on in the Old Testament where uh, you've got the Ark of the Covenant that is uh, captured by the Philistines. And then there are all these plagues that break out among the Philistines and these tumors and the mice and all these things. And so what do they do in the end? Uh, you know, to ruin the story for you, you can go back and read it. But, but they take the Ark and they send it back and they put a whole bunch of gold in the cart with the ark. It's sort of to appease this God. And so here you've got this this very rich nation, Egypt, right? Uh, You know, opulence in abundance. And we've we've seen some of the gold that comes out of their tombs. And and you've got uh, this people and their God, which has been a plague on them for maybe up to a year, several months, completely destroyed uh, their their country. Uh, And they want to get rid of them. And so what do you do? Well, you, you send them away and you also appease their God. Um, I found this fascinating, maybe you will as well. Um, just a, a little bit of, um, of math, I, I'm, I'm no great mathematician, but if you take the figures that were given here in some of the footnotes, um, it says, now just with the gold, it says there were 29 talents and 730 shekels. Now a talent, uh, it tells us, uh, is there the, uh, what is it, about 35 pounds? I think there's a, 75? Okay. So if you work that out, um, that ends up being 2,175 pounds of gold. I'm sorry, 2,192 and a half with the shekels. Uh, now, um, at the current or, or somewhat current exchange rate of 1,226 per ounce, uh, if you're, you're quick with your math there, that works out to be um, about $2,688,005. Now, when we put it in those terms, it doesn't really sound like all that much, considering the fact that uh, that uh, what was it in April of 2016, Wikipedia reports that the Fort Knox holdings for our country uh, of gold, uh, 4,582 metric tons. That is about 180 billion dollars in bullion. Uh, not counting all the, the other little things. And here you've got 608,000 men and their families. You've got about $2 million worth of gold. It's really not that much. And so, but people say, well, whoa, well, whoa, whoa, this, this couldn't actually happen and all these other things. 16, like 41 is it 41? Yeah. I told you I'm not a great mathematician. That's, that's still, I mean, comparatively to, to what our nation has. And granted, our nation is much larger, much more established. Uh, but coming out of, out of Egypt with all their opulence, I mean, that's... That's not <laughs> that much when, when you really consider it. And there's, there's all this silver and all these other things. Um, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, in, in a sense. Uh, but we do have all this opulence. So, so why all the opulence? Why all the beauty? I mean, here we are, uh, not, to, uh, not to poke at uh, raw nerves, maybe, but here we are in a very bland... Uh, sort of uh, public meeting space, and, and this is fine for our worship, and we don't feel a need to erect any kind of gold altar, and, and uh, I, I don't wear any kind of special clothing other than I put a suit jacket on on Sunday. I, I don't, you know, wear my, my gold turban and all these other things. So what's, what's going on? Why such opulence in the worship? Why would they even be concerned about these things? What is it meant to show to them or to the Lord or, or in either direction? And why, why then, but maybe not now? Why do we not? Ha- I think that's maybe the, the, the crux of the issue. Why was it so opulent then and such a focus on, on those things then and not a focus now? Okay, so God commanded it. Uh, yes, and we're going to get to that. In fact, I, I think you probably saw the refrain as we went through there, didn't you? as the lord god commanded moses so they did and it shows up over and over and over again and it is showing us yes they're they're doing exactly what the lord commanded but but why why command all of these things why not say you know folks it's really best if you if you worship me in simplicity and in spirit and in truth you don't need all these trappings Yes, yes. And in fact, we skipped over it. This is not one of the chapters we read. Uh, so I don't want this to be a trick question. But it says very clearly in chapter 28, verse 2, talking about the priest's garments, that one of the purposes here was beauty. It says, you shall speak, um, where is it? And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. That There is a role of beauty in the worship of the people. And I think you're right. It's supposed to, to grab their attention, in a sense. Uh, now, now, what we see, if you, if you go through and you look uh, at what was really uh, the kinds of figures that were made and angels and celestial beings and, and the colors, it, it's supposed to give sort of a sense of God's celestial throne room, if you will. Uh, it, it's heavenly imagery and, and it's angels and it's cherubim and seraphim and all, and all these things and it, it's supposed to, to grab the people and, and show them a bit of, of God's glory. Uh, that, that God is uh, not a God of confusion, we find in, in Corinthians, but, but a God of order, and, and there's beauty in order. I, I heard uh, some of you men talking about um, Fibonacci sequences and, and things like that, and, and mathematics, and, and and there's a certain beauty in those things, and God has given us those things, too. There's also a human psychological connection truth and beauty. Okay. Mm. Yes. they will always put beautiful pictures yeah. along with it yeah. and the reason for that is because we
1: have a connection between beauty
0: yep. we see beauty and we assume that there is truth with it mm-hmm. yeah and, and so it, it conveys uh, some truth and, and, it, and in this sense it's not selling them something false but selling them something true here is a picture of the beauty of the God that has made these things you know, here, here is a picture of his glory. That's what it says. You shall make these things for Aaron, for his sons, for glory and for beauty. There's something here that's, that's meant to, uh, to mirror who God is to the people. They're supposed to be struck by his presence when they, when they enter worship. Bill. Yeah, I think
1: that the, you take things that are valuable to the people. hmm
0: Yeah, and, and it it's helps us to reevaluate things and put things in their proper perspective. That, that if this is the God who commands these things to, to go according to these ways. Now, we, we can take this in all manner of uh, other directions. You know, so the, one of the other questions I asked was, well, why not now, right? And you have uh, a very distinct break in the Protestant Reformation coming out of the Middle Ages where there was lots of opulence and lots of gold and the Sistine Chapel and beautiful things and paintings and, and just, oh, it was everywhere. And then the Reformers all of a sudden saying, nope, get rid of it. Let's meet with plain walls. Let's, let's sit and, and, you know, the new covenant. it's the new covenant. Okay. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, we see that, uh, we looked at that. Um, in uh, in First Corinthians, or was it Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians five four. This is what happens. So, uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 3. Since we have a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's something even in the glory and the beauty of these things that they saw then that was being brought to an end. For their minds were hardened, and to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we read in in the letter to the Hebrews, and we're not going to look there now, but. It talks about all of these things and the beauty and the glory, and it's a shadow of the things to come because there's this new covenant, this internal covenant, where the Lord is writing the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, on the hearts of his people. That's what it says uh, in 2 Corinthians. God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So why don't we emphasize these things now? Well, uh, there's still that psychological connection, sure, and, and it's we don't purposely try to meet in a dump. We don't say, well, the, you know, uh, the, the glory of the covenant is internal, so let's, let's meet in the worst place that we can. But there's something to be said for, for outward glory. We don't put our trust in those things, and, and, and the essence of our faith and our belief isn't in those things. Mike. Do you have that one, Bill?
1: Well, for God's temple is holy, and you are that
0: temple. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then, and then it speaks, too, in the New Testament about, uh, you know, it says, women, don't adorn yourselves uh, with gold and jewels and braided hair, but with, with what is fitting for godliness uh, and, and a, a firm temperament. And, and uh, you know, all these things that go along with, you know, adorning uh, ourselves with, with godliness, with an inward beauty rather than an outward beauty. But there is still a, a connection with those things. And, and it's worth thinking about outward beauty, not to rely on them, um, and, and not even in the same sense that it was then, that it was commanded, that it was necessary. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it fosters, and, and I'll, let you, I'll let you think more about that. We could go on and on and on. But.
1: Right.
0: Right. Sure. Becky, you were going to say something. So what I'm hearing is the idea in in a sense of condescension to where we are, Um, that that this is what we require, and so God condescends. Well, that's true. God often condescends to meet his people where they are, but he never condescends in such a way as to alter the reality or the truth of what he's doing. And so it's a fascinating study to look at Exodus and then to look at Hebrews. And so forgive me if if I'm going to reference Hebrews over and over and over again, Um, but Hebrews... You know, it it deals with, when you go through that study, what you see in that letter is this temptation of Christians to go back to Judaism, because in Judaism, they have the temple, at least up until that point. They had the temple, they had the worship, they had the the pomp and the circumstance, they had all these things, and that was alluring, that was good. Uh, And at no point does the writer say, no, 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 this, that's all a sham. No, it says, this is true, insofar as it points to something that was coming. And so he does condescend. He does have this physical presence, but the reality of it is that he's pointing to a, a, a real presence of Christ who is coming, who is now in a real presence uh, before the Lord, who was our true high priest. And we're going to switch here and talk. Oh my, we're going we're to switch here and talk about the high priest a little bit. Um, but but that's the reality. And yes, he does condescend, but he he does so in a way to to point us uh, to greater things. And so we need to we need to see the other half of that. Kathy, you're going to add something really quickly. And this idea of the high priest. So one of the things you'll notice, and I'll sort of cut to the chase because, uh, as usual, we're running past time that I wanted to be running past. Um, in a lot of the things that you see in the tabernacle, there are things that are beautiful um, for a purpose, right? So you've got the, the altar uh, you've got the lampstands, you've got the bread of presents, and they all serve a purpose. You, you've got these dishes, and you've got, it talks about uh, bases to put the tent poles in, and all these others, and they serve a purpose. But there is almost, uh, there's at least as much detail uh, in the garments for the priest uh, as there are in, in any other aspect uh, in constructing the tabernacle. And a lot of the things that that we see on the priest don't serve a physical purpose, not like a base that holds up a tent pole, not like a dish that holds something in it, or a candle stand that holds a candle. It it serves uh, a different purpose, and so we see, uh, in a sense, more detail. What you really need to see, what what we're drawn into, is this picture of of mediation, and of the Lord who meets his people uh, in the tabernacle. The glory of the tabernacle uh, itself is meant to be a picture of God's holy throne room, the glory of the priest is the representation of the one who goes into that throne room. He's one chosen from among men. And it's this mediation. So there's a, a bit of the glory of the Lord, but he's also very humanly. I mean, it goes through and it talks about undergarments. We talked about that before. You don't get much more human than undergarments. Uh, and, and it's not, in a sense, trying to be, uh, you know, uh, rash or, or impolite. Uh, but we get this sense that that there is this one who stands in the middle, who stands in the gap. Um, I want to read for you because I think it's too good to let go. Um, There was a a poem written by George Herbert, who was a uh, medieval priest uh, late in the Middle Ages, Um, and uh, here's what he writes. So He was was himself a priest, um, and he writes comparing the way he ministered uh, to the way the original Aaron ministered, and you'll, you'll hear some elements of what we saw on Aaron, but also the way he can minister in any kind of truth. This is what he says, holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead, to lead them unto life and rest, thus are true Aaron's dressed. And you saw there the, uh, the description of the priest and holiness on the head and Uh, And Bell's Below. And he says, profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where there is no rest. Poor priest, thus I am dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making alive, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him, I am well-dressed. Christ, my only head, my alone, only heart and breast, my only music, striking me, even dead, that to the old man I may rest, and be in him new dressed. So holy in my head, perfect in light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ, who is not dead, but lives in me while I do rest. Come, people, Aaron's dressed. So here's this priest approaching the people, and he's saying, what do I do? What, you know, I, I'm not dressed like Aaron of old. There, there's no significance in the things that I bear. And in fact, when you compare me to these things, I am dead uh, and I am profane, but there's another one who covers me. Uh, and I think that's just a, a beautiful, picturesque way of putting it. And you can look in the New Testament, you can see, uh, you know, Christ, we, we looked a couple weeks ago in that picture in, um, in Revelation chapter one, the son of man, and he shows up in a long linen robe and a gold ephod. And, and we think of the uh, the opulence and the splendor and, and the gold um, filigree and, and things woven into the you know just the whole thing. It's meant to grab us and, and to show us something of the beauty of Christ, something of the glory of God. Now uh, let, let's jump uh, all the way there to the end. Uh, we've got this uh, this element. I'm sorry. One more thing. Uh, Brian mentioned uh, that we see this refrain as the Lord commanded Moses. anybody else notice that as we went through? In case you were counting, it shows up seven times in chapter 38. It shows up seven times in chapter 39. Uh, seven, as you know, is the biblical number of perfection. And so there's this double perfection. And it hasn't happened. It, it hasn't shown up in all the other chapters when we've been going through, the ones that we skipped, uh, where the people made uh, the tent, and they made the poles, and they made the ark. And they made, it didn't show up there, but it shows up here, as the Lord commanded Moses. At least it doesn't show up in the same prevalency. Uh, but we see this in two chapters. Uh, what is the point there? What, is, what are we supposed to see uh, in this as the Lord commanded Moses? In fact, we see it most clearly in the end of chapter 39. Chapter 39, verse 42. It's almost this back and forth. According to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. And then Moses blessed them. So what are we supposed to get here by, by this? And it's shown up several times, and now sort of a focus in the end of chapter 39. What's the significance of this repeated refrain? Okay. But what was the, what was the uh, thing that the Israelites said at the Institution of in the Covenant? They had not done. Yes. Right, right. Yep. And when God confronts Moses, while the people are reveling at the bottom of the mountain, he says, they've quickly turned away from my ways. They've not done what I commanded them. When, in chapter 24, the institution of the covenant, they said, all the Lord has commanded, we will do. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, but we get to the end, and, and we see there's this, there's this jockey. So were we supposed to see... Uh, the faithfulness of the people, or are we supposed to see the faithfulness of their Lord? Which is it? Or is it some of both? I vote both. I vote both. Yeah. Chris was chuckling back there. I think uh, <laughs> it, it's a little bit of both. Um, because, you know, God has said, and we saw the, the golden calf incident, and we saw that the Lord said, okay, yes. Uh, I will keep you, and, and I'll renew my covenant. And so the Lord is himself giving grace. He, he did not, well, what was the threat when, when first uh, the people went aside after the golden calf? What did the Lord tell Moses he was going to do? Done. <laughs> They're gone. Uh, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes, and he says, all right, but, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses intercedes again, he says, okay, back to plan A. Not that plan A was ever in jeopardy, but there's this tension, you see. And and we see what what the Lord is doing and and seeing both His faithfulness to sustain His people and His faithfulness to sustain His people in faithfulness. They ended up doing what the Lord had commanded because the Lord enabled them. All right. About ten minutes. Seven minutes. uh, To to deal um, with this last part here. So the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, that's good. Uh, Now, this is the the fulfillment of promise, right? Uh, The Lord said, I'm going to have you build a tabernacle, and and there I'm going to meet with the people. That's what he said in chapter 29, verses 43 through 46. There I will meet with the people. And so he does. Uh, But what immediately happens after the Lord comes down upon the tabernacle? The very next line. Is anybody able to meet with him there? Not even Moses. Here at the tent of meeting, the people can't meet. It's even more intense than uh, when Moses was able to come up uh, onto Mount Sinai. It's more intense than the tent of meeting that happened outside the camp while they were waiting to uh, establish all these things. And the glory so fills the tabernacle that Moses himself can't come in. Why is that there? Why even, because it's almost a repetition, you see. Look at verses 34 and 35. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's repeating uh, verse 34, but in context, it's also adding, but also Moses couldn't go in. It's drawing attention to the fact that Moses couldn't enter. So why is it drawing attention to the fact that Moses couldn't go in? Why is this different than the other tabernacle? The other tent of meeting, rather. Take a guess. Okay. His full glory was there? Yeah? I think that's right. Any other guesses? We don't have a definitive answer, by the way. We're we're not playing uh, guess what the pastor's thinking. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, Hold on there, Jay. Um, So, Ronnie says that that he is a great leader, uh, but he is not God, and and this is the domain now of of God himself. Now, is this, uh, sort of to to put in perspective, is this the continuing um, state of the tabernacle as they go throughout the wilderness? Will Moses ever be able to get back into the tabernacle? Well, sure. And the priests will be able to go back into the tabernacle. So this is a this is sort of a one-time event. This is just the beginning. That it, it's filled so much with the glory of the Lord uh, that even Moses can't go in. And so we've got uh, you know that uh, that Moses is not divine, so we can't be there. Um, Jay, you were going to add something else. I don't think it's judgment. I don't think it's that they have not kept the commands. In fact, the the rest of chapter 40 shows Moses very clearly. Moses probably didn't do all that work himself. But in chapter 40, it says Moses completed the work, and Moses did this, and Moses consecrated that. He probably had help from the Levites, from the priests, but it does say that they consecrated, they did all the Lord had commanded, and we see that again, as the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded. So they did consecrate, they did those things, but Moses is singled out, and now Moses is singled out again. Now, what do you remember from the original tent of meeting that we read of months ago? Uh, That uh, that it would happen, there was a tent outside of the camp, Moses would go, uh, and he would stand inside the tent, and the cloud would come outside the tent and speak to Moses, and what were all the people doing? Standing outside their own tents. Now Moses is the same place that the other people are. He's been this leader, he's been this intercessor. I think, Ronnie, you're, you're right on, that, that he's showing you need more than Moses. Moses can't come into my presence. In fact, he said uh, in chapter 30, 33, 34, let me see your glory, and God says, no, <laughs> you can't. No man can see my glory and live. And, and even this one, this leader, who radiates with the glory of God and has to veil his face, even he isn't able to enter the presence of the Lord. We see the same thing happening again, don't we? Uh, When the temple is constructed, in 1 Kings chapter 8, it says almost the same exact thing, that the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and even, it says there, the priest, the priest could not enter because the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, or filled the temple, rather. Where else do we see that showing up? One more place in Scripture, almost the same language. Okay? Yes, absolutely. So John picked up that language. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. In fact, John's the only one in the New Testament who uses that kind of language. He uses it again in the book of Revelation, uh, where he, uh, he talks at one point, and I believe it's in chapter 15, um, he talks about, uh, and let's not get sidetracked with millennial views, uh, but he talks about, again, uh, now in a spiritual sense, the glory cloud of the Lord filling this tabernacle in the heavens where even those who were drawn to him, you know, nobody else can come in. The angels can't come into his presence. The the people who were, uh, I think it talks about those who were beheaded for their witness and clothed in robes of white, they can't come into God's presence. And it has the same kind of language. But then the culmination, right, in, in chapter 20, where now it says the dwelling of God is with man. And it's a full dwelling. And it's one that we're able to come into, and it's one that we're not barred from, and, and we're, we're able to enter because there is one, and you, so you sort of trace the steps, right? It happens in Exodus, it happens with the temple, and then it doesn't happen. Uh, it's a glaring omission, I think purposefully, uh, when the second temple is built, after the return of the exiles, uh, that the, the glory of the Lord does not come and reside. It, it doesn't tell us anywhere. And the glory of the Lord doesn't dwell among God's people until Christ himself comes. And then he says, I'm going to a place where my father is. And, and if I go, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to where I am. And You're not going to be left out. You're, you're not going to be left in the darkness, but because of Christ and because of his intercession. Because he's the perfect priest who, uh, who raises the dead in, in the sense that we heard from, from George Herbert. He brings his people into God's dwelling and it's, it sort of comes full circle. That it's this picture that we see in the Old Testament that's culminated in the New and that we look forward to. What are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to a place and a time when we will dwell with the Lord. We'll behold his glory face to face. Not unveiled, or not veiled rather, uh, but unveiled through the the ministry of Christ. Now, um, I wanted to end with big takeaways. So if anybody's got got them, um, what do you come away from, from Exodus with? We spent the fall looking at these things. You say, wow, I've never seen this about the Lord or this is what really grabbed me or, or what are some things that, that you're coming away from Exodus with, uh, with fresh eyes to see? Ronnie. Yeah. So talking about God and realizing his greatness and his faithfulness and his goodness and making that a part of our, our daily lives. Jay, you wanted to say something before I so rudely interrupted you. saw that in chapter three Um, you know i made myself known as the god of abraham isaac and jacob but by my covenant name yahweh i did not make myself known but now i am now you know who i am and so it's not a light thing to to see god as he reveals himself and to realize that that god can reveal himself truly to not perfectly because our minds are finite and and he is infinite but he does reveal himself truly, and we can actually know something about him by the way that he reveals himself. And that, that should blow our minds. Yeah. Yeah. Any other big takeaways? All right. I'm going to end with a quote uh, that I found in, in one of the commentaries I've been using the whole way through. Uh, you'll notice that at uh, the end of Exodus, that you've got people who are enslaved in the beginning, You've got people who are on the move by the end, Uh, and I think that's a a good uh, way to think about it. Uh, And Alan Cole says this, uh, to speak of a journey, which is where the people are now. Anytime the the cloud moved, uh, they would move, and every time the cloud stayed, they would stay. To speak of a journey is to look for an arrival. He who has begun a work of salvation for Israel will complete it. Cross-reference Philippians 1, that is at once the hope and the confidence of the people of God as they move forward from Sinai, and therefore it is our hope too, uh, that the Lord leads his people still, that he, he keeps us and he directs us, and we follow him in his leading. Uh, let's pray together. O oh, gracious Lord, our God, thank you for a glimpse of your glory and your beauty. Thank you for Christ, our Savior and our great high priest, uh, the one who cleanses us and raises the dead, the one who stands uh, before you in your presence, interceding for the saints. O oh, gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would help us to realize this journey that you have us on, as so many of your saints have been called exiles and sojourners in a foreign place, so we await a promised land and an inheritance with you. Draw our minds and our affections to you, and to that inheritance you have for us, keep us by your spirit, and hold on to us by your grace, we pray in your name, amen. Amen. Thank you folks. It's all yours, Steve. No, I don't. Nope. <laughs> we need a we need a baton. You're the treasurer. I think you I think you've got the capabilities. <laughs> Hey Mark, I should turn this thing off.